Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello everyone, I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Law Review is Dorothy Clay Sims. I've known Dorothy for years through her involvement with Florida Workers Advocates and Florida Justice Association. She's a very talented and successful lawyer who specializes in methods of expert testimony cross-examination. She is the founder of the law offices of Dorothy Clay Sims, PA in Ocala. Her practice focuses on an incredible niche of helping other trial lawyers debunk defense experts who engage in deceptive practices. And I'm just going to read a little bit about her so you guys get a feel for what she does. Uh, Dorothy consults with attorneys throughout the U.S. to provide methods of expert testimony cross-examination. If an attorney requests, she'll actually do the cross-examination herself. She's frequently invited to in-house seminars for lawyers and law firms on researching and cross-examining. She's given over 350 speeches internationally on medical legal issues throughout the world. Her book, Exposing Deceptive Defense Doctors, was a bestseller for three years in a row and went into reprint status soon after publication, which is unheard of in the industry. She received both her undergraduate and law degree from the University of Florida, so she's a double gator. both my daughters uh, are, uh, one graduated from UF and one is a sophomore there. So uh, part of my heart and money is, is going there. Uh, she studied international law at Oxford University. She is licensed in the state of Florida, U.S. District Court, Northern District of Florida, U.S. District Court, and the Middle District of Florida. Dorothy, welcome to Trial Law Review. I'm so happy to have you as a guest today. Thank you. So before diving into the legal stuff, I know that you are married to a physician um, and you all work together at times. So I was wondering what that is like. Uh, And I understand that you guys met sitting across the table when he was an expert against one of your clients. Well, actually, um, there's some folklore that surrounds us in our relationship. The reality is we met at a restaurant, Mr. Hans. And um, then after we got married, the defense industry, they really trusted my husband to tell the truth. And they began hiring him on my cases, knowing we were married. And one of the longest depositions I ever took was of my husband, where it got really gritty. Like he would say things like, um, Ms. Sims, your question isn't making any sense. And I would respond, well, if you would pay attention and think about it, maybe you'd understand it. It was bad. But it was also kind of fun. Yeah. Sounds like typical husband and wife stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It was it was really kind of fun on both parts. We didn't we didn't take it home. Uh, that's a great backstory. So um, from doing my research, I know that your grandfather was influential in your life. 
Was he the reason you became a trial lawyer? And if so, why? Um, you know, there, that, that's, that's really funny because um, when I just was thinking about going to law school, he told my mother, oh, Dottie Clay, that's what he called me up from Kentucky. Dottie Clay shouldn't go into law. It's not for women. It's, she's already disagreeable enough. She'll never get a husband, right? And he, my grandfather knew me. And I was so angry at that, that I made it my life's mission to go to law school, right? Um, and then years later, my, my first husband was graduating from law school. And my son, John, named after my grandfather, asked me, what, what's Papa doing? Because he's watching the graduation. I said, he's graduating. He's going to be a lawyer. And my son, John, looked at me and said, well, wait a minute because he'd only known my friends, my girlfriends who were lawyers. He goes, wait a minute. I didn't think men could be lawyers. I, it was just sort of a great karmic circle. But I think in, in retrospect, my grandfather knew me well enough to know that that is exactly how I would respond. And it worked. Well, you know, from just the limited research information I had about him, sounds like he was tremendously accomplished and just interesting uh, history. I, I didn't realize you're your deep connections with Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, they were, uh, my, my family's quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, that's definitely true. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask you about one of your sim siblings and the motivation to fight for those with disabilities. Can you explain what motivated you in that regard? Yeah, this, um, this handsome young man, his name was David uh, uh, Sims, David Hansford Sims, I named my, my son after him. Um, he had severe Down syndrome, and he never spoke um, ever. He really couldn't walk well. He was legally blind and couldn't hear. But he really taught me everything that I, I needed to know about compassion, about grace, about humility. No, no matter how bad things were for him, he always had such a great attitude. And I saw the way people treated him, and it made me really upset. And so I found myself in a very protective mode, just like with my clients. And I know that's the basis for what I, why I do what I do. It's it's my brother. Love it. Uh, you know, our our company synergy is built on helping people that are catastrophically injured, and many of them wind up with disabilities as a result of the accident or could have been pre-existing. But you know, I've also got a law practice which is separate from synergy, and my focus is on doing the planning for people that are disabled and did my LM in that area. And it's, it's incredibly rewarding to help people that, you know, need that kind of planning and, and need the help that we can provide for them because they, they don't have that ability to do it for themselves and, and creating that framework for protecting people's dignity and, and treating them with the respect and empathy they deserve is such an important part of all of this for me. So I, I loved reading that little tidbit about that being your motivation. It's, it's, it's heartwarming to see that. So I know that your career started representing the injured. I know you represented coal miners in Kentucky and then ultimately established a very busy workers' compensation practice here in Central Florida. You helped to found Florida Workers Advocates, the watchdog uh, over the insurance industry for protecting injured workers here in the state of Florida. Um, and, and I know from the research while representing injured workers, you noticed an alarming pattern of things happening with forensic experts. Can you talk about how, about that and how it led to you, led you to the creator of the MMPI? I, I found that whole thing fascinating, being a psychology major from undergrad, 
Uh, it just that all of that to me was very interesting. Sure, sure. Um, I noticed uh, one particular expert found all of my clients to be fakers and malingerers. Um, I think maybe 60, 70 in a row. And I began to get mad. One case in particular, I really loved this client. She was amazing. She went into a bus, a school bus that was on fire, and she saved all these children, even though she was severely burned. And he's calling her a faker. I just was furious. And he did it based on the MMPI, a, a psychological test, the most commonly administered in the world. And so I decided, um, my husband was going, he was giving uh, tests to be board certified in physical medicine rehabilitation in Minneapolis. And I thought, well, I'll just go there because that's where the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory was first created. And I met with the creator of the test, uh, Dr. James Neal Butcher, and I showed him the data and he started laughing. And he goes, this is ridiculous. I said, what do you mean? And he said, the witness is lying. It's absolutely not true. And I said, would you teach me this test? And so he said, the first thing you need to do is take it yourself, which I did. I took it. I've taken it probably four times. It was a little scary because there's a psychopathic deviate scale and it was slightly elevated. And I, I was freaking out. And, and Dr. Butcher said, don't worry about it. It's, uh, it's a scale, all lawyers have elevations in that scale. And, and then he, that sounded bad, right? But then he went on to explain, it's the scale that also measures how much control you want to exert over your environment. And so it was very helpful. So anyway, I had him testify in my case and we won because it's clear he knew more about his test than the expert hired by the defense. And then I began to realize, holy crap, if they're doing it in this case, they're probably doing it in all cases. So then I began to meet with, uh, creators of other psychological tests, and I had myself tested all day, and I asked uh, somebody that I knew to give me some malingering tests and make sure that I failed, even though I was trying hard to pass, because I learned that there's ways that the doctors can manipulate the administration of the test that will cause your client to fail a malingering test, and indeed, that's what happened. For example, one of these tests, if you show the, you're shown a series of drawings and then you're asked later which drawings you remember. And if you don't remember enough, then the conclusion is you're intentionally faking. But if you show the drawings too quickly, you can't encode the memory and you'll fail. And that is what happened. And so that's why I started pleading with lawyers, please videotape these defense exams, all of them, the physical exam, the neuropsych exam, record them all. And, and what the, the pushback that I was getting was, well, if we record it, they'll just do a better job. And I have just one word and you can edit this out in post, but that word is bullshit. Maybe it's two words, I don't know. But anyway, so what happened was um, we started getting videotapes of defense physical exams. And um, um, I asked my husband to look at one of them. And I said, look at the report and look at this video. Is there anything off? And he was shocked. He goes, yeah. I found 15 statements in this report, none of which are true. I looked at the video, these particular portions of the exam never happened. And then I thought, oh my God, I'm onto something. So I began to have him review all of the videos on cases that I had. Um, and then other lawyers heard about him and through my firm, they retained him to look at the video and the report that the defense expert did on their cases. Um, and after a while, I didn't know this, but after a while, he became really he became really disturbed about what he was saying. And so he went back over the last 20 cases in a row and he said, I'm going to write to himself. I'm going to write an article about this. And 
I didn't even know this. So he did, and it was published. And what he found was in every single case, even though the doctor knew they were being videotaped, they still misrepresented what happened 100% of the time. Um, and I can, that's an article that was published in a, a, a state a journal and also an international one, I believe. So to all those lawyers who are afraid the doctors will be a, do a better job, oh, no, they won't because they don't care. They're not even paying attention to what they're doing and saying. It's, it's shocking. It's really shocking. And when it comes to the neuropsychological aspects, that videotape is even more important because we, every single month, I have a case where the doctor um, gives a test and alters the client's answers or changes it or answers for the client after the client goes home and then reaches conclusions about malingering. We had one, one case last week where the doctor changed the answer, another case where another doctor changed the answer, and he got so worried about it, he wouldn't allow us to finish the deposition unless we agreed not to claim he committed fraud. And oh, hell no for that, right? I mean, it was great. And so then he decided that he retired and would not allow us to complete the deposition. So yeah, I can't tell you how important that is. Another, another thing that happens all the damn time is when the defense medical doctor does a physical exam, he'll do what's called, or she, a mental status evaluation, and they'll give a test like the MOCA or the Folstein mini mental status, but they don't give the whole test. There's 30 points you can get, and they'll claim it's a perfect score, but the client didn't answer the questions correctly or were not even asked the questions and the actual scores in the severely impaired range. I mean, that's low hanging fruit for a plaintiff's lawyer, right? I mean, that's, that's something that is so outrageous to a jury that it makes them mad and it should, it should, it's shocking. One of the things that, um, that I learned early on, my husband said, you know, why don't you approach these cases as if you were Sherlock Holmes because Sherlock Holmes attitude was, Everything you tell me is a lie unless you prove to me it's not. And once I switched to that model, if you will, all of a sudden I began to find outrageous things. For example, uh, I was volunteering, I, I volunteer in civil rights and death penalty cases, and I was in Arizona cross-examining this witness. And the witness um, has a CV, and I said, is it correct? Yes, it is. And it shows that he had a master's degree from UCLA. And I, um, I said, uh, I, because I, I realized I needed help in researching these experts, and so I reached out to a company called ZS Information Group, which is amazing, and they verify education on all the defense experts. And so I said, you know, let me ask you about that master's degree, because I'm a little concerned about it. And then the witness goes, a funny thing about that, and I said, yeah, funny thing about that, the university never heard of you, right? Come to find out he bought the degree online, right? And here's why it's super important for you to check the education, especially in people who are not medical doctors, because MDs are vetted better. In 2019, there were 45,000 legitimate PhDs that were awarded, but there were 50,000 illegitimate PhDs that are awarded. And I'm finding that about 40% of the time, when I verify this education using ZS Information Group, they lied. I, either I had one guy where he says that he has a PhD in psychology. It was in physical education. Oops. Um, and we had one last week where the university never heard of him. Um, that's awkward. So I would, and it's only about maybe 200 bucks for them to do just to verify the education. Um, if you want them to verify everything, it's about two grand. But that education is key. 
because the minute the defense expert knows you know that they're not telling the truth, it's over. It's over. It's shocking. It's shocking. Well, you saved me because uh, a question I was going to ask you about that, about how do lawyers find out about that sort of thing, experts that are fudging on their CVs and you know how do trial lawyers get that kind of background on experts. And that's great that you've shared that because I think that little tip alone is is worth the listen for people that are, are, are handling personal injury cases with experts on the other side, which is nearly all the trial lawyers that are going to be listening to this. Oh, what, can I add one thing to that? I just, yeah. So if you have a CV and you don't want to spend two, $2,000 on an expert, well, first of all, you can share with other firms and you can all combine. If you have the same expert coming up over and over again, um, it, it might be worth it. But one, one tip that I use is I'll take the CV and I'll, I'll convert it, OCR it so I can do a word search. And whenever I see uh, under job descriptions, like from 1987 to present, the word to present, invariably, whatever the organization is, they're no longer a member. And so the first thing I do is I'll say, well, it says here to present, you're a member of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Is your testimony today under oath that you are currently a member of that organization? And the last time I did that, I found 18 different references that the doctor simply misrepresented. And it had been like that for decades. So... So all, all this sort of stuff is what led you to do what you're doing now, which is helping fellow trialers when dealing with some of these so-called forensic experts. So can you talk about how that works, your practice? Sure, sure. Um, currently what I'm doing, I, I don't, uh, a lawyer will bring me in to either cross-examine the doctor or create what I call a red line report, which is to take the doctor's report, I then save it in Word, and I insert in red the questions to ask, and then I give them the exhibits. We also have Dr. Hunter's services where he watches the video, he um, uh, authors a report, and he gives you exhibits that prove, you know, the Babinski was never done, the Hoffman's was never done, whatever. Um, he references the AMA guides, and he has the key page referenced um, in that material. Uh, and the way we work is we charge hourly and it's generally payable at the end of the case when it's resolved. We, I don't charge a percentage because then that makes me responsible for the whole case if lead counsel bails. And I, I don't want that. So that's what we do. Um, I also give in-house seminars. I've had law firms come and spend the day with me at my home. And um, sometimes uh, they will be tested with the same uh, uh, tests that their client has given has been given that's been extremely beneficial we have a, a therapist that can come and test a psychologist that can come and test um, it's just very helpful to to understand the the nuances and I think lawyers feel overwhelmed with the science and I totally get that but there's some workarounds that, that you can you can use for example um, when I do a deposition I've done I had a huge case involving a neuroradiologist and so I paid another neuroradiologist to participate as my consultant in the deposition. And you can privately communicate with these people via instant messaging. Like I'd be cross-examining on Zoom, but then I have another WebEx as what I use in privately instant messaging. And I announce the attendance on the record. And then when the defense expert hears I've got somebody in the same specialty, they freak out. And they'll say, you can't take my deposition. Well, yes, I can. You, know, you cannot make my consultant leave. And it's very agitating for them. And that's why it's important to videotape the deposition because the jury's like, well, what are they afraid of? Right? 
Beautiful. Well, and you know what you do really isn't all that different from us where, you know, we're helping trial lawyers with areas that they perhaps feel uncomfortable with or don't have expertise where we have specialized knowledge. So, you know, that model is is one that seems to be more and more with you know, becoming prevalent because cases are getting more and more complex. There's a lot of different issues. Yeah, you can't do this on your own. People have to reach out to people like you for assistance because you are going to get lost and you're not going to figure out your mistakes until the end of trial. Yeah, and you know, I, I since people may not know this, so you, you you mentioned Dr. Hunter. Dr. Hunter's your your husband, who we we talked about at first. Can you talk a little bit about you know, because I know he's he's part of your practice and what his background is and qualifications and what he does. Sure. Um, he is a physical, he's a medical doctor. Um, he's board, he was board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation. He retired um, from treating patients for my request because I felt like he went, it's time for him to go out and have fun. But then he noticed what I was doing and he wanted to stay a little bit involved. And so he was very helpful in reading reports and identifying absolute lies uh, medically uh, that were in some of these reports. And uh, it's been very helpful to have him on board. He also ran a brain injury clinic in Hawaii. And so I, I do a lot of brain injury work. I don't have my own clients. I'm always, I'm never lead counsel, but um, on those cases that I get involved in, it's extremely helpful to have him available because a lot of times, especially during depositions, the defense will cite an article and claim it says such and such, and it's not true. So he will go out in the middle of deposition, buy the article, read it, and highlight in yellow where the expert lied and email it to me. And then I'll just share my screen and say, well, you said this particular article says such and such. That's not true. And after a while, they get so frustrated, they quit citing literature, meaning that they're just you know, making things up. So I think it's very helpful to have somebody, extremely helpful, to have somebody in your larger cases participating in the deposition. Also, um, one of the things, this has nothing to do with Dr. Hunter, but one of the other things I started doing is having the client on the deposition on Zoom. So if the defense expert says my client's a faker, they have to look my client in the eye. And I had a case recently where the defense expert says, well, the client's on the, on the phone. I'm not comfortable with that. And I said, well, I, I'm sorry, but he's going to stay. And he refused to go forward. The lawyer said, no, the client can participate. So then the, the witness blurts out, I changed my mind. He's not malingering. <laughs> okay, we'll take that. Um, but in any case, I, I can't stress enough, if, if you prepare well enough before those depositions, you'll rarely go to trial and you will save you and your client so much money, but you have to spend money to do that. And that means you have to pay someone in some of these cases to sit through a deposition with you. It's, it's worth its weight in gold. Are, are lawyers hesitant to bring in another lawyer to depose an expert and why shouldn't they be? Yeah, um, I've had, I've, <laughs> Yeah, especially when you're talking about a woman. Uh, some of the male lawyers are not comfortable um, allowing, and I use air quotes for that, allowing me to take the deposition. And they'll start off with, well, I've done this for 47 years, and I don't need any help taking this deposition. So it's gotten to the point where I'll say, all right, here's what we'll do. I'll, I'll prepare a, a report for you to ask. I'll get you the exhibits. But I want you to tell me when that deposition is. And I'm just going to put it on my calendar just in case. And then when we get in the weeds with the medicine, they're ultimately like, I can't do this. Hello. <laughs> I mean, you know, some of it's ego. Now, in some of the cases, I don't want to take the deposition 
because if the witness has done something so outrageous, if I show up, they're going to be more careful because pretty much everybody knows me. And so I'll tell the lead counsel, you should take this deposition or don't take the deposition at all. Wait till trial. But it, a lot of times it has some of it has to do with sexism. Um, I don't think I would be receiving the same response, although it's gotten a lot better in the last 10 years. And some of it has to do with ego. Some lawyers are just, they just cannot fathom that someone else can do a better job than they can. So I, you know, I know that you know, you've got this practice or so there are cases where you're just more helping prepare plaintiff counsel where they're going to do the deposition and you're just detailing for them what exactly they need to do. Yeah, I'm actually trying to do more of that because I travel quite a bit. And I, I also uh, live overseas part time, and so I need I need the ability to uh, not to be tied to a traditional time zone. Um, so I prefer doing the prep, but sometimes I can tell the lawyer's just really struggling, and I'm going to need to be the one to take it. So, um, but my my goal is to to reduce that quite a bit. So Plus, honestly, there are a couple of experts that I hate so badly. It, I can't, I just shouldn't take their deposition. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can understand that, knowing, knowing the landscape uh, enough and seeing what other trial lawyers say about some of these, these so-called experts. So I, I know based on your experiences in, in this niche, you authored a book called Exposing Deceptive Defense Doctors. And I don't want to ask you to give away all your secrets, but would you tell trial lawyers what are the top five takeaways from that book in terms of identifying misrepresentation and strategies to deal with this sort of thing? Sure, sure. If you presume that everything the witness is saying is a lie, and instead of begging for crumbs of acquiescence, oh, doctor, please, would you agree that a herniation can be caused by a crash? I say heck with it. You know. I don't trust anything out of your mouth. You prove to me how a crash can't cause a herniation. And the minute you shift the burden to the witness, they look like a moron because they're made, a lot of these people are making things up. For example, one of the techniques is if the witness thinks that you want answer A, he'll give you answer B, always. And here's an example. Doctor, just because somebody took an acting class doesn't mean they're dishonest, does it? Well, the witness, when I asked that question, thought I was referring to the plaintiff. And so he went off on a rant. This was in trial. Absolutely, it means they're dishonest. I wouldn't trust a word they had to say. They're trained to lie. Oh, okay. So, doctor, if the defense defendant took an acting class, and he did, um, then we shouldn't trust the defendant, right? And the witness got very upset about that. I call that the briar patch technique. And it works. It, it works every single time. Even if you tell someone in the beginning of the deposition, I'm going to do this to you, they still, they hate you and everything you stand for so badly that they cannot restrain themselves. They just go too far. Another technique that I use um, is I will hire, in some cases I'll hire a nurse, and she goes through the report, and she'll insert in green in a Word document. I, I save the report as a Word document, not as a, a PDF. She inserts in green everything the expert left out. And in every case that she's done that, I am shocked at all the key evidence that the defense expert left out. In fact, this morning I was reviewing a case, and the doctor says, I found no spasms. And he references all these reports where other doctors found no spasms. But he left out 
all the reports where doctors did find spasms. He left out a, a, an acutely uh, herniated disc, an abnormal EMG, all the good stuff. And that's a good place to start because that's dishonest and it's biased. Um, so the other thing is um, presume they haven't actually seen the scans. I've started saying, did, I don't say, did you actually open up and look at the scan yourself? I ask a longer question. This is what I call the shot across the bow, meaning I'm going to ask you this question and here's why I'm asking it, which makes them very nervous about the answer. And here's the question. Doctor, have you reviewed the actual scans themselves in this case? Not the report, but the scans, because if you have, I want you to pull them up right now and I'm going to ask you to go to a particular series and slice. And they're very nervous about it because they don't know why you want to know that. And many of them don't actually have the scans in the first place and they can't open them up, meaning they were, you know, I think a lot of them would normally lie and say, yeah, oh yeah, I looked at the scans. Well, they don't have them. So presume they didn't. Another sad presumption is, uh, you know, when they show a, a slice, see there's no uh, brain damage, no herniated disc, whatever. They were looking at the wrong slice. And so the question is, doctor, do you deny that there are other slices in that same scan that more clearly show the damage? And they won't deny it because it's true. And bad, I mean, I could go on for days, but this one really pisses me off. And that is, um, I've had two cases now where the doctor shows an image, they were brain injury cases, and there's no brain damage. And I looked at it and there wasn't. But then I open up the same series and slice on the actual MRI and it's different. I believe the doctor used a slice from someone else's brain scan. And the doctor couldn't explain why that series of slice looked different. So again, presume everything is a lie unless they prove that it's not. Um, also, I would suggest if you have any cases involving psychological tests, the only way to really get a handle on it is to take the test yourself. It will be the best money you ever spent. You don't have to take every psychological test that was ever created just a few. <clears throat> and once you understand how a few of these tests work, you can apply that to all of the psychological tests. That's what I would suggest. Um, uh, one of the things I also like to do is use codes of ethics to cross-examine people. For example, I think neurology says if you do, if 20% or more of your work is forensic, you have to be able to prove why you're not biased. Nobody knows how to do that. You can get all the codes of ethics on my website, dorothyclaysims.com. You can just click on them and, and take them away. Um, the other thing you need to presume is that the doctor does not understand the medicine. Uh, no matter, and, and the way to prove it, I know we're trained, don't get in the, in the cage with the bear, don't argue the medicine. I call bullshit on that because these people are not actually experts in the specific nuanced area of medicine involving your client. 99% of the time they're not. And here's an example. Um, you have a brain injury case, and the doctor is board certified in neurology and even in psychiatry and has been treating brain injuries for 50 years, right? I will say, are you an expert in the anatomy of the brain? Because if you are, I'm going to ask you some technical questions. I have never, I think, ever had anyone claim that they were an expert because the minute they know you're going to test them on it, it's over. It's over. In fact, I just had a trial last week where the witness admitted that he wasn't an expert and then in trial tried to claim that he was. So all you have to do is go out and get a complicated picture of the brain, and I have one, and I uh, redacted the descriptions of the areas of the brain, and then I'll say, okay, doctor, you know, what is area number one? 
what's the name of the area and what how, what's the function? They have no clue. Whatever the, the issue is, if you Google the condition and look up the big words, that's your cross-examination. And they don't have a clue because they don't care. They don't care about knowing the medicine. They also misrepresent what your client says. So I get the exam transcribed. In fact, I was working on one this morning. Client denies any neck pain after this crash. Do you have neck pain? Yes, I do. It's in the transcript, right? It's crazy. They just don't care. So they make stuff up because you know what? We as the trial lawyers have allowed them to get away with that for decades, for decades. But once you actually have somebody who's an expert analyze what they're doing during the exam and look at the report, you get an, a 15-page chart showing 25 misrepresentations. And they're done. They're done. Because jurors get mad when they see that. And they punish the defense. So you just mentioned um, in when you were talking about that, that you know doctors will replace or use slices that are not from the actual client, which is just shocking. But are, are there other things that you've seen that experts will do to try and fool plaintiff counsel? So what, what should trial lawyers be on the, out, yeah. the lookout for? Yeah. All right, let me give you an example of a trial that occurred a couple of years ago. I think it was like 2019. I'm in trial, lead counsel's up at the podium cross-examining the witness. And I told the trial lawyer, look, it's really important that we take all the medical records and combine them into one PDF and then OCR it, which means you, you on Adobe Acrobat Professional, you click a button and it will make the entire thing word searchable, right? I said, you have to do this because in trial, you don't have time to find something. And finally, he agreed. We did it. And then in trial, the defense witness says, well, your client was on narcotics for knee pain prior to this crash. And I didn't remember that. And so I did a word search for the doctor that he claimed found that, and it was a complete lie. And so lead counsel was able to say, doctor, you just made that up. None of that is true. And we couldn't have done it unless we OCR the medical. And in fact, um, I, I just finished a trial recently. And in the trial, I had done that as well. We had 7,000 pages of records. <clears throat> and the defense experts kept lying or misrepresenting, maybe it was an accident, misrepresenting the, the medical records. <clears throat> and so um, every time they would do that, I'd do a word search and I'd call them out on it. Um, and midway through the trial, I got a call from defense counsel. He offered me a job. All it took was combining and OCRing those medical records for him to be overwhelmingly impressed. And that's kind of ridiculous, but I can't stress how important that is. And then I also will bookmark the key findings because defense experts will misrepresent pre-existing medical conditions. They will inflate them to be catastrophic when they aren't. They will leave everything out that supports your client. So when you read that report, you read it for what's not in there first. Then you read it for what's been misrepresented. And frankly, that's your cross right there. So you've talked about this in a couple of different ways, but I want to make sure that the listeners come away with exactly what they should be doing. What what are your top three suggestions in terms of medical evidence for trial lawyers to prevent deceptive practices by experts? 
Okay, first of all, you have to hire a good expert who really reads the records. You don't want a mouthpiece that's just going to tell you what, what you want to hear for a whole host of reasons. It's awful for your client to be diagnosed with something they don't have. But you need a really good expert, and they are expensive. Don't take the case if you're not going to get a real good expert. Just give it to somebody else because it's not fair to your client. The second thing is you've got to understand what the medical records say. The third thing is you've got to get a really good timeline, and I'm going to go more than three. And then you need to research the expert witness and find out what's out there. Listservs are great. I have material on over 1,700 experts. Some of it's 20,000 pages per expert. Um, there's great stuff out there. You need to get it. You need to read it, and you need to save it for the next time. Um, and you just need to, the other tip that's important, when I take a deposition, I usually schedule the deposition for four hours because one hour is a complete waste of your time and they will try to run down the time. I then have a very specific subpoena, which I'm glad to share. If somebody authored an article, I want emails between the co-authors because if they're hiring an expert because he wrote an article, you know, you can find some real problems with those articles if you get the emails between the co-authors. If it's a psychologist, I subpoena them to bring all the raw data and the test manuals, not to give to me, but I make them pull the manual up and admit that the manual doesn't say what they claim it says. So we also demand emails. Maybe even we should start demanding text messages. Um, and I want to see the raw data in the document, depending on the state, if I'm allowed to access it. So I ask for the digital information, including the digital report. And here's why that matters. I had a case where the doctor said, I'm sorry, my report was late. I didn't get the records until last week. Well, I opened up the, the PDF report, and it was created two years previously, before he saw the client. Ouch. So um, just, just get everything there is. And it, it's a lot of work, absolutely. But there is nothing more satisfying than getting these people exposed, especially when it's too late for the defense to, to get a new expert. So please don't take these depositions until after the deadline has passed for witnesses, because otherwise they'll just substitute somebody else in. Before wrapping up uh, questions about what you do and, and these things, uh, is there anything I missed that you think is important for trial lawyers to be aware of when it comes to all this stuff? I mean, you've talked about a lot of stuff, so if, if there's not, great, but I wanted to give you an opportunity if there's not. Yeah, yeah one, uh, sure. One of the things that happens is, like in a brain injury case, they'll say, well, the first scan was normal, and it wasn't until two years later they found the problem. The problem with brain scans is if you don't have enough slices, like in the first case we had 500 slices, in the second case we had 6,000 slices. The reason we found the damage is because we got a better MRI. Get a really good MRI with lots of slices. Try to get a 3.0. That's a good, strong magnet. The other tip that I would, I would say is get an EMG within, within two months or to three months of the injury because an abnormal EMG can tell you if it's acute or chronic. And nobody knows this. And so you want a, a medical doctor to do that EMG right away. And that way, if it is acute, you've just eliminated the defense's claim that it preexisted the crash because it didn't. The other thing that I would recommend, if it's a herniated disc case, um, Dr. Michael Freeman has done some great research, and they always claim, well, it's activities of daily living that cause this herniation. No, according to his research, a crash is two, it's, there's a 2,000% more likelihood that a crash caused the herniation disc than activities of daily living. So statistically, that's crap. 
Um, also, a lot of times defense will say, well, I looked at the herniation and it's, it's not acute, it's chronic. Well, the research is you cannot date when a herniation occurred unless you have a, a scan before the crash. You cannot do that. There's several publications that say you can't look at a scan and know when it herniated. And yet people do that all the time. It's just simply not true medically, scientifically. You can't. So I, uh, in looking at your background, I see that you do a, a lot of volunteer work. And I'm just curious what's behind that for you, because it's, you know, giving back is, is something that's so important to our culture here. And it just jumped out at me. Yeah, yeah. Um, my, my parents, when I was little, were about volunteering, and there were people that volunteered to work with my brother, and that really touched me. Um, and so I, I thought it was very important. So we have five children. We have a combined family, and we decided early on that we were going to tell our children that they had to volunteer once a week, and we did. Um, and they went to IB programs, and um, they also required volunteering. Uh, and it's important because you have a lower drug addiction. You have a, you have a greater self-esteem for kids if they volunteer. Um, and so it's always been important to me. And my, my grandfather volunteered um, on a number of cases. So I volunteer on death penalty cases. Um, that's how I ended up in Casey Anthony's case. I was volunteering for that. I also volunteer in civil rights cases. Uh, and I volunteer in cases in which there's no chance of recovery, but there's a great injustice that it involves a medical expert. Um, it, I just feel like it's important. I, sometimes it's as much as one plus days per week that is volunteer. That's actually, I enjoy that more than the traditional practice. I just think it's important. And I give all my stuff away. You know, if, if you need a deposition, if you need cross-examination on certain topics, I'll send it to you. It just makes us better as a whole. Plus, you know, the Grateful Dead, in the very beginning, they became famous after they decided to give their music away. And their agent was saying, that's ridiculous, don't do it, don't do it. Well, they did. They just gave it away. And then they became wildly successful and they could start selling it. Uh, I'm a Buddhist and I believe in, in giving things like that away. And my husband was very insistent. He said, you have to give this away. You have to give it all away. And I agreed. And so I did. And that actually, ironically enough, is not when my career suffered. It's when my career took off. So I would urge other lawyers Please share everything you have on the listserv with plaintiff's counsel. Defense, doc, defense lawyers don't do that so much, and it hurts them. It hurts them. Yeah, you know, I've talked about that very fact on, on a lot of episodes uh, of Trial Law Review with other lawyers, just how, to me, it's a, really a beautiful thing that you see the collaboration amongst trial lawyers, and that's part of what why I wanted to when we were building this to, to make sure that when we did our stuff, it was thought leadership based. So we educated lawyers so they're better prepared to deal with the issues. And when there is an issue that's outside their expertise, they know they have experts they can come to with us. So wholeheartedly believe in exactly what you've, you've said. And I think it, it does make you very successful when you're, when you, you educate instead of, you know, trying to keep it to yourself. Yeah. Plus, what happens is people remember you and they start sending you stuff. Oh, I remember you had that case here. I thought you might like this. I now pretty much every day get depositions from other lawyers on doctors I've never heard of because they know I keep it all and then give it back out again. And so they want there to be a central database. And I, it's even in my will. You know, I've got almost 2000 folders now on experts around the U.S. And I want it out there for everyone. So it, it's helpful to your own practice. It's great karmic work. 
So, um, you know, I know before you got into to doing what you're doing today that you, you handled a lot of workers' compensation matters. And usually what I'll ask guests um, sort of at the end of this is just, you know, what they what their experiences were dealing with some of these issues that arise at settlement. We, we, we refer to it as the case after the case. Just curious about your recollections of just dealing with those sorts of issues when you were handling those those cases and dealing with MSAs and Medicare and uh, the the complexities of all that. Oh man, it got it it got frightening there. So I decided I would reach out to to other people to try to help me navigate some of that, help me prepare a contract where there's, you know, to try to protect for offset things of that nature. Um, it, that's something I, I don't do work comp anymore, really, but uh, I would strongly urge lawyers to get some assistance with that because you can be in a really dark place if you screw that up um, for on a whole. It can be extremely expensive lesson. It's really super important to reach out. Um, one of the things that I, I learned in workers' comp that I took with me into personal injury, and that is the billing. There's something called a HICFA HCFA 1500. It's got a new name now, but it's the billing. And in workers' comp, the doctor checks the box. It says, is the condition work-related? And so I started getting these in my PI cases. I started writing for the work comp file because the defense expert will say, oh, yes, the condition's related to the injury because they know they need that to get paid. And they sign that under penalty of perjury. And then I remember having a trial where the defense experts said, oh, no, none of it was related. Well, here's all these bills for like six grand and every single one under penalty of perjury. It's not it, it is related. You did that to get paid. And now under oath, you're changing your testimony. Are you going to give all that money back? You know, it's a simple thing like just looking at the bill. Because I think what happens is they instruct their staff to check that box off because they are afraid that's the only way they can get paid. So write for those bills. So last question and completely open-ended in terms of how you interpret it. So what, what is your view as a trial lawyer? About? Whatever you want to talk about. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Whatever you- Oh my God. Help. <laughs> um, well, um, I, I've been doing a lot of mentoring of women, and one of the things that I've learned is that um, women actually do better in the courtroom than men do. Jurors trust women attorneys and women expert witnesses more than they trust men, and yet women are two-thirds less likely to be lead counsel. So first of all, my I would urge all of the male lawyers out there, consider elevating some of the women in your firm to be lead counsel because it's going to be financially beneficial to you. Also, I'm on the diversity committee for, I'm chairing it for the American Association of Justice Traumatic Brain Injury Litigation Group. And one of the things that we've learned is that if you, if you increase diversity, there's a ratio between each percentage of increase of diversity in your own hiring people with diverse backgrounds, your income actually goes up by 3%. You can drastically increase your income simply by hiring diverse attorneys. Um, one of the things that I think is very important, and I don't see law, law firms do this maybe as much as they should, and that is insisting that your trial lawyers go to as many conferences as possible. Those live conferences, if, if Delta cooperates, are super helpful. Um, there's some really great seminars out there, and the more you go to these things, the more you're going to pick up. Because you tend to learn better when you leave your environment. If you're at your office, you're not going to assimilate as much. 
but you, you need to send your staff to these seminars. It's extremely helpful. You need to train your staff. Let them mentor. Let them follow you to depositions because they really don't know what they're doing. My three of our kids are lawyers, and um, I remember my first two, my first two, my sons, they they were preparing for deposition. I went down into the dining room, and I said to my son, "What are you doing?" He goes, oh, "I'm preparing for this cross examination." He was reading a book, and it wasn't my book. It was how to prepare for deposition. I'm like. Are you serious? I'm right here. You don't even ask, right? Well, you know, I, I think one of the problems is that, that lawyers don't know what they don't know. And so that's why it's helpful for a baby lawyer to attend a deposition with you, the older lawyer. Because for one thing, here's an example. They don't know what to do if the witness refuses to answer. They don't teach you what to do in law school. Like, they don't tell you to say, you're under oath. I'm going to get the judge on the phone. You're not answering the question. There's no basis for this. I'm going to move to strike you. We need to get this resolved. Um, let's get this resolved. They don't know how to deal with that. So please spend the money on your associates to really follow you around and, and learn how to do it. Um, presume every medical opinion is a lie. Um, go over, take the reports from all the defense experts, give them to your experts and have a conference and ask them what's wrong with this. Don't think you have to do it yourself because some of these things, especially the physics of brain scans or, or MRIs of the spine, that's that's tough to navigate. Very hard to navigate. Um, <clears throat> you also want your own expert to feel comfortable telling the truth. And so what I do is I'll, I'll call our experts and say, tell me what bothers you about this case. Because I want to get, I want to, I want to find everything out. If he really doesn't think it's a strong case, I need to know that now, not on, on a trial. Um, the other thing is make sure that everything you have is easy to access. The medical records are combined, the pleadings are combined, you bookmark them, you can find them easily. That will be the, 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 the successful resolution if you're more prepared than the other side is. And one other suggestion we have when we do, I do mediations for lawyers. I'm not the mediator. I will present as their consultant and I'll put together the PowerPoint and I'll demand an hour for the plaintiff's presentation and the defense is agitated by that because they don't have 150 slides or videos or whatever. And so the adjuster is very concerned about their own attorney. Wow, why aren't you this prepared? And then we tell them things that came out in the deposition that the adjuster wasn't told because defense attorneys aren't really listening that carefully. Um, and they don't realize when there's some inconsistencies. And so we've got over, I'd say over 80% of the time the case is resolved. We also have Dr. Hunter remote in as a medical consultant and explain why their experts are wrong, that freaks them out. And that's good because they don't have a medical expert that does what he does. It's extremely helpful to say, well, your expert wrote a report, claimed he did these five tests. He didn't, he lied. Um, that settles cases because lawyers know that jurors get angry when they realize they've been lied to. And that's when you get nuclear verdicts. And so you, if you, the point of all that is if you prepare for mediation as though you're going to trial, you're not going to have to go to trial. And the, the defense attorney and the adjuster, they can smell it if you're better prepared. And most lawyers do it the opposite way. They wait until after mediation to really prepare. And I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem. In, in short, I guess if I had to wrap it up, I would say once you learn some of these techniques, and my book is broken down not only in terms of techniques um, in general, but also how to cross-examine the neurologist, a chapter on orthopedics, a chapter on psychology, on psychiatry, a chapter on knees, backs, RSD, depression, PTSD, etc. Once you learn these techniques, you'll get your cases resolved. 
For example, a simple post-traumatic stress disorder, what's that worth? Well, the reality is PTSD causes atrophy of the brain. It causes brain damage. And so if you flip the script and you turn the PTSD into a brain injury case, that case will settle. So if, if you can use these techniques and really work your butt off before mediation, you're done. The case will resolve. But you got to change your business model. Uh, some incredible advice. Thanks for sharing all that. I, that actually this is the first time I've asked that question and wasn't wasn't sure if it would work, but that that worked great. So thank you for for being my guest today. <laughs> and I didn't prepare you for that, so I probably should have. But great job no, doing that. So if if there's someone listening and they want to work with you, how how do they go about working with you and getting in touch with you? What's the best way to do that? Okay, if you reach out to business manager at dorothyclaysims.com, um, she'll set up a, a free telephone conference and then we'll chat and I can tell you if I think I can help. Um, I tend to stay booked six to eight weeks out. So, uh, you know, last minute things are not, not that easy. Although Dr. Hunter can do his projects pretty last minute, I generally can't. Um, just reach out to her, she'll set up a telephone conference. If you need something and you don't wanna hire me, just email me directly. It's my initials, DCS at DorothyClaySims.com and whatever the issue is, I've probably got something I can share, suggested questions or depositions on experts, et cetera. And if a trial lawyer wants the assistance of Dr. Hunter, they would work through your firm because he's with your firm as well, right? Yeah, yeah, just reach out to business manager. And all we need is we need the videotape, the report, and if you got a transcript of the evaluation, which I really recommend, bring the transcript, give us the transcript and all the medical records. He's not gonna read them, but we can do a word search in it and pull out the key findings like herniation, you know, brain damage, whatever. And then we'll insert that into the body of the report. So just, just send that information. And just as an aside, um, Zoom is really great. If you have, a, if you have a, a video of an exam and you don't wanna to pay to have it transcribed, if you enable the transcript function on Zoom, Zoom will transcribe the whole thing instantly. Now, it's not as clean as a court reporter, but it's instant and it's free. So, and, and you should, you should when you get your depositions, tell the court reporter you want to enable the Zoom function because that allows you to instantly go back. If the witnesses, I never said that, you can go back and do a word search in the middle of the deposition. And when you're done, you have a free, dirty copy. Oh, one other thing, please start working remotely. This is for the older lawyers. It is so much better for the environment to allow everyone to work remotely. It's so much cheaper. You can re decrease your overhead by 30 to 40%. And research shows us that the, the function and the success of your employees goes up if you let them work remotely, not down. They're happier. They can save up to uh, $4,000 a year on mileage. So it's like giving them a 4K raise just by letting them work at home. And if you do that, what I started doing is advertising in states that have low average weekly wages like Alabama and hiring uh, staff from those states. Uh, a paralegal in Los Angeles, I live in, in California, even though my practice is in Florida, a paralegal here could, could run you under 25,000 and you can get a paralegal for 50,000 in other states, Oklahoma, Alabama. So rethink how you do that. I have an outline I'm glad to share with people on how to work remotely. It's much nicer. Yeah, we have a good chunk of our staff that operates that way, was doing that prior to the pandemic and even more have done it now. It certainly does work as long as you've got the technology to support it. It, it works flawlessly and it, it does have 
a lot of a lot of great benefits. You know, we because we do so much lean resolution work, we have a lot of our folks that are in Kentucky because they've come from the recovery contractors, which are all based in Kentucky for the most part. So, you know, when you need experts that are good at something, you can find them in some of those areas. And particularly, you know, if they've got that expertise and they're not willing to relocate, it's a great way to have people working for you that are the best at what they do. And they love it and they're very loyal to you. I know one law firm lost 30% of their employees when they said, okay, we're not gonna allow remote work. It's ridiculous. There's no reason not to allow remote work, right? Yeah. Well, so we'll put in the show notes today, links to uh, Dorothy's website and for you to get in contact with her. I would like to thank Dorothy for joining me on Trial Lawyer Review today and we'll see everybody on the next episode. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Lawyer Review. You can find more at triallawyerreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.